Welcome back to the Hi-Fi Podcast with Darren and Duncan. I'm Duncan. I'm Darren. And this week, we've got a fun episode. Uh, we're going to talk about recording and specifically uh, the simplest and also the hardest instruments to record and how they're recorded and, and why perhaps they're either easy or challenging. Uh, before we get into that, like always, let's check in with each other. Darren, what's been going on with you audio-wise last week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I made some uh, some record purchases Okay. last week, and um, I, uh, I've been meaning to... So, like, you know, records can be such a great investment, it's not even funny. Uh, just, just buying the right records and, and just sitting on them is, is something that there's so many records that I just kick myself for, you Mm. know, like not buying. And, uh, you know, some of those that jump out to me as when, uh, MoFi first released the UH, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, one step, uh, uh, line, uh, they, they put out. Uh, Santana Braxis as the first, yeah. the first one. Yeah, you mentioned that. Well, it, th- that record is now going for more than two thousand dollars. Whoa! Wow! And they, I think they used to sell for one hundred twenty-five back then. Yeah. So, yeah. Good call. That is an investment. So you know Jeez. that's uh, and then and then uh, acoustic sounds they start putting out UHQRs. Yeah. Uh, well, they've done that for quite a while, but they put out some modern ones and. The um the first of like the modern era of UHQR ha- was uh, Jimi Hendrix Axis Bold's Love, and now that's going for like seven fifty plus opened. Yeah, there's wow. only like one in the U.S. right now on the market for seven fifty. Is, is that why you've got the UHQR Miles Davis up on the wall as a display so nobody plays it so you can sell it later? <laughs> No, but I'll keep it up there for that reason. <laughs> yeah, right. um, Don't touch it. <laughs> uh, so their their latest is Jimi Hendrix, uh, Are You Experienced? Mm. And it's almost sold out. So um, so if I hadn't gotten my copy in, I would have been talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have mentioned it. But, fair enough, uh, fair enough. But yeah, like for those that weren't aware about that, like you, you might want to uh, think about... Um, buying that record if if that's something that appeals to you and uh <laughs> if you're on the line you probably won't lose money um so i did that and then there was like a ton of other records that i've just been waiting for to buy at acoustic sounds that have just been out of print mm. and they've been waiting on the uh, qrp orders just because qrp has been backed up um throughout covid it was just the wait time to get something pressed was ridiculous. Mm. So I've been wait. I've been trying to get my hands on Lightning Hopkins uh, going away for oh, for a long time. Oh yeah, and right. uh, and finally they got him back in stock. So um, yeah. So if you were, you know, turn on buy that album um, by a recommendation, uh, and you wanted to find it on vinyl, Chad does have it back in stock. So. And I assume you're yeah. saying this after you got your copy. because Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Wouldn't want that going out on me. Oh, man, that's exciting. Lightning but, uh, I love that album. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's one of our first uh, album recommendations mm-hmm. on this show. Yeah. And I also got a, uh, I got a Kenny Burrell as well. Cool. 
So, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's um, always fun to pick up some new vinyl, but uh, I'm just trying to stay on top of like the big releases that I see, mm-hmm. uh, especially in yeah, UHQR and, and One Step. Although I totally missed the boat on One Step. Um, mm-hmm. I totally missed all the, the first ones, which are the ones that are now worth all a lot, a lot of money. Right, right. Um, and hmm. I uh, really really regret not buying <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel one step. Um, so anyways, terrible. Uh, yeah. You, you should, um, you should regret it. That's, you should feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah, bad. It, it's good. It's good because now <laughs> it's like reminding me, it's like, okay, go and buy, you know, this record and, and you, uh, you will be thankful that you, you made this decision. So. That's good. That's good. That's good. Learning from your, yep. your mistakes, sir. What's, uh, what's going on with you? Uh, uh, spent the weekend out in Buena Vista. They call it Buena Vista, even though it's spelled Buena Vista here in Colorado. I call it Buena Vista. Well, because it is a Buena Vista. When you go out there, it's, you're, you're in this valley, this flat valley between two, like mountainous kind of ranges Mm -hmm. and it's large and expansive and it's amazing the snow the peaks have snow on them and everything else is melted and it's beautiful yeah it's so beautiful so you're going there and you're like this is a beautiful vista like oh my goodness and so the the concept of calling it buna vista just because that's what the locals call it and then you're not from the area if you don't call it buna buni Buni, Buena Vista. Buni. Like, it's one of the prettiest places ever. It's And it's got the Arkansas River flowing through it from Leadville to down past town, headed towards Salida. And, um, yeah, we spent the weekend. We went to a hot springs and all that kind of stuff. So. Cool. So I didn't, uh, I didn't do much listening over the weekend, but last week I got this. I got a new tweak device, and uh, I think you're already shaking your head. <laughs> <laughs> and you it was so subtle apparently you at least in the places that we tried on your system tonight you couldn't hear it and yeah. i've been enjoying it but uh you think it's well i didn't it's not that i couldn't i didn't hear anything you just There's didn't hear difference anything between the two even though i i did but you know you 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 think it could be influence psych, it could be a psychological influence because i was the one putting it in and out and i have something to to prove by bringing this device over and uh putting it in different places and uh, yeah if there is something it's it's very 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 minimal in the system and i don't understand i do need to understand like how the product works to some degree i think that's getting in your way and and also you weren't listening to music before i got here but you're but it's but i i need that like that's a bare minimum to like just have a product that you can sell it's like why why is why it, what, and, what is this how does it I mean, actually when you're, work yeah. when you're claiming something as crazy as this this rf emitting device that makes stuff better is it rf or is it like how else would it be doing it can you do that with electromagnetic fields well that's what uh rf is like emi is electromagnetic yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I, that's what I thought it would be. But so, what it is is a product from Nordos called the Q Point, and it emits these resonances or these BPMs. They call it. And it's it's like a frequency. Uh, 
I don't recall them talking about it being like a Schumann resonator, but they 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 have those in the industry. Like, uh, who makes the the acoustic revive makes the R seven 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 and the R eight eight eight, and those generate these fields that permeate your gear somehow. But this Nordos product says it will synchronize the see that's the mechanical vibrations of your components on the circuit board by <laughs> overriding them with a resonance that they end up singing to is what the, you know yeah no there's nothing published there's no data you know you can't find any real info it's got great reviews and and the reviews like talk about things that i hear it doing in my system under my DAC. and uh, yeah, I brought it over here and I put it in place. I, I, I can hear it, you know, I don't think it's psychological, but you know, you just weren't, you weren't hearing it. And so fair enough. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about with a tweak. It's like, if it's, if it's so subtle, you, you do start asking the questions like, what is this? Why am I even wasting my time with this or, or money? Um, well, I mean, also, like, you have to understand what, what it is. Like, I don't know. It's like the explanation doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that but the marketing you. doesn't that make any sense. That bothers you. Yeah. And then I, there's, like, big problems. It's like, well, if it is, like, you know, RF, well, what about, like, placing it below a chassis that's shielded? Well, that's the question is how does it get through the Faraday cage? Yeah. Right? So it's well, that's a, metal, a big problem. Metal enclosure. Yeah. Yeah. There's, like, the science thing. Um, yeah. And, and I approach it with an open mind of just like, Oh, let's see if it works. And I, I, uh, heard it in a demo and I, I observed, uh, improvement. And so I bought one, um, we're at the music room where Nordos dealers, so I could get one at a decent price. And, um, I had to move it around my system a little bit till I found a spot that it really, like affected it but i just i don't know about putting noise in to solve problems it, i don't i don't know about that i don't and like they, that and it says it has warnings on the manual that if you have a pacemaker like don't use this and like if you you know are sensitive to this you know so it's you gotta watch out when grandpa comes over you, <laughs> you have to wonder if like how it's fcc compliant if it's really like but it says it's in a localized region, like close to it. So you have to put it on a device or under a device. <clears throat> All I know is that I've spent days with it, almost a week. I think I got it last Thursday and I love it. It's incredible in my system. It's, it's an absolute, um, it's like a fuse change for me with my DAC. Um, and it, it's made my desktop system. It's helped my desktop system get to this point. That's just like the most resolving desktop system I've ever heard in my life. It's one of the most resolving systems I've ever heard. It's like a different animal from the last time that you were over there. In 18 so, days to make those speakers, man, you know, that's quick. <laughs> the speakers are amazing that they keep right. showing, showing things that I do to the system. As actually I, like a one day. Speaker I improve or something it. Like yeah. That, yeah. Right? Well, sure. I'm I'm not responding to that anymore. I'm just like, <laughs> I keep upping the number. <laughs> 20. Did you take 20 days to make those Dude, things? It took a whole year to make them. So, yeah, I mean, so anyway, Darren wasn't convinced tonight, at least not on this system here. Um, I love it. So that's my that's my fun thing for the week and 
I've been just going crushing through a lot of music. I think last week's uh, new releases had some great folk albums, and this week's new releases have some great electronic albums in the electronic genre from Cobuzz. There's some like, there's some more. It's an electronic like new releases, and you click on it, it says classical as the genre. So you're like, I, I kind of like that those kind of albums usually uh classical ambiance some avant-garde there's this album called pulses that's uh just this like avant-garde classical piece with like two of the tracks it's like it's like old school synthesizers and oscillators with like these pure saw and sine triangle wave tones and that kind of thing but in these crazy like uh almost mathematical patterns and stuff um, so great releases this week. So I've just been drinking in music, but yeah, as I've gotten this thing into the system and I, uh, the last change I did was a power cord change on my amp. Um, oh, and a fuse on my preamp, uh, systems just st- stupid. Good. Just cranking. Just, it's so good that it's like, it's like so remarkably good that I do kind of waste it a little bit when I just put on music while I'm working for like hours because <clears throat> it's so incredible that I'm just like normalizing myself to ignoring incredible audiophile experiences while it's happening. But, and I worry about like ruining myself, but I do end up listening to music almost, you know, so much of the day. And you work from home? Yeah, I work from home. Yeah, Yeah. and that's why I I maxed out my desktop system. That's why it's my best system in my house, and that's why I just like I'm around it all the time. But, yeah. That's great you work from home, man. You get to (sighs) take care of the baby. Yeah, we've been going back and forth trying to find babysitters. They seem to like to quit the day before they start or whatever. And um, Yeah, last two days we've had the baby at home, and it's been a challenge, but... Yeah, it's um, just being having the <clears throat> the best system be where I spend all my time during the day. It's been awesome, and it doesn't ruin me for great audio file experiences. I'm just I'm just loving it. So that's that's my week. Got my tweak on, listening to a lot of music, and uh, yeah, that's tweaking. about it. Just tweaking. tweaking, man. Just tweaking. Um, all right. So that's up with us. Uh, let's jump into some questions for the week. This week, we're going to do one question and two recommendations, um, because we love questions, tips, recommendations, uh, album recommendations, and we've gotten some great album recommendations from folks this week. Um, we've got several great questions. We're just going to answer this one. And we'll we'll do some more next week, as usual. But uh, this first question, I'll do the question first, then we'll do the, the recommendations. The question comes from Mike Cook. And Mike writes, uh, hey, gents. Uh, Mike's subject line here is amp for the Dunlavi SC4A. Yeah, four. Hey, gents. I'm a relatively new owner of a pair of SC4s and a constant browser of TMR. The current setup is a Macintosh MC202, and we have uh, JBL SDP55 as the processor. Surrounds and centers are the little Dunlavies, uh, and I'm using Mar- a Marantz 7055 for those. Still reading? 
Do you have any recommendations? I assume he's saying that because of the like receivers and the processor, but that's that's cool. It sounds like an awesome surround system. Um, question is, do you have any recommendations for an upgraded amp at the five k ish price point, or should I stay happy with the Mac? I saw that that Darren has a PS PS Audio BHK Signature 250, but that's unfortunately a little bit out of my price range, and most of the recommendations on the net are a bit dated. So I thought I would ask the experts. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Hey, how about we do this? Have it you you give a recommendation, I'll give a recommendation. Okay, sounds good. It's two different things you could research and look into. Perfect. Yeah. Um, who, who's going to go first? Me? Oh, yeah, you can go first. Okay, so Mike, you're a constant browser of TMR. Um, one of the things I did first was kind of just check in at the music room and see what we've got on power amplifiers right now. And uh, I'll have to give me some inspiration of like what to talk about. Um, one of the first things that popped into my mind was Darren's M1200s, um, which just kick out a ton of power and, and everybody agrees to have incredible, incredible bass response and um but um new those aren't uh five for uh, a they're, pair uh, they're like are they four, on sale right now yeah they're four something right now they're like oh well then i have two recommendations because that's class a tube input class d output great implementation from the master of class d over here darren um uh, one of the masters uh <laughs> And, but my, what I kind of like instinctively, instinctively went to when I was looking at power amplifiers at TMR, uh, is this pair of Parasound JC1s that's available. Um, it falls in your price range right now. They're 4850. Um, and original MSRP is six grand for the pair. They're in looks like uh, pretty decent shape. A um, couple of tiny little nicks that are photographed and that kind of thing. So uh, I don't know. John Curl designed big mono power amplifiers for those, those good amps. babies. I mean, yeah, everybody They're good amps. People love those yeah. things, and so um, that's an option. I'm assuming, Darren. You, I didn't steal your thunder when nope. i said m1200 because no, yeah. no 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 i'm not going to recommend my own stuff well i'll recommend it too because if yeah. you go to ps audio's website right now there's a big sale on stellar equipment uh, yeah that is, and it's a good some good deals you can get a pair right of brand now. new m1200 monos for four thousand three hundred ninety eight dollars right now so 4400 gets you a pair of m1200s and that's down from 6600 which is their standard price um so a couple of options for me I, I, I think I love those options right there. Yeah, Obviously, those, you want those something... are some good recommendations. Yeah, okay, go. Um, I have a recommendation that it's like... <clears throat> it's like if you uh, decide you want to spend a little bit less. Uh, so the recommendation is a Plinius SA-102 amplifier and... I, I believe the going rates for these anything between like twenty I wanna say like twenty two hundred to twenty seven hundred depending on the the condition. Uh um so 
I recommend this amplifier. Uh, I actually had an SA100, uh, so it's it was kind of like the previous version of the, the 102. And uh, the 100 is 100 watts uh, into 8 ohms, and the 102, I believe, is 125 watts into 8 ohms. And um, they have a class A and class AB switch on the front. Yeah, so you yeah. can switch into pure class A. It gives the same wattage. So it, it switches it into 125 watt class A. Yeah. And that's when the heat sinks uh, start, start working. Oh, they start working. This and, thing and is it, mostly heat sink. It, it's a great sounding amplifier. I know. I've, so I've yeah. tested and played with the SA100. I'm, I'm not sure if I've uh, listened to the SA102. I, I think the 102 is a better buy like for mm. it being a lot newer. Yeah. And just the prices, it's like it's not that much more money. But if you really want to go down, I mean, you could buy a. I wouldn't get into like the lower marks on the one hundred because they they did have issues. But like the the Mark the, the MK three is like the one to buy, and that that's more like sixteen eighteen hundred or something like that. You can get that for. So if you want yeah. it a little bit cheaper, even that would be an amazing amp. But I knowing and like owning the S the the SCIV. Um, Especially that you don't have the A. You didn't designate whether you he have the A or not. He did say he has an A. Oh, it is an A. Say, yeah. Okay. In the well, subject line, he mentioned it. In the body of the email, he just said SCIVs, but he's okay, he added the A in the Well, a, A's are what I have. So I, I think that the combination between the Plinius and that would be really great. I also think the combination between the JC, uh, the JC1s and that would be great as well. So um, two different... Uh, if you want something a little bit slightly more on the sweeter side of things and a little bit more tuby, definitely the Plinius will be the most tubiest option. Yeah. Um, if you want something that's uh, perhaps a little bit more um, like eloquent and something that's a little bit more uh, refined, uh, the the JC one might be the way to go. So. Yeah. Love it. Love and it. also cool. It's cooler. Both of the the the, the M twelve hundred also uh, would run by the far coolest. like the coolest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the most power. Um, but the uh, the Plinius in Class A is unbelievably hot. <laughs> I mean, like wind coming off the heat sinks yeah. and changing the room temperature. Like one time, my my father and I were having a listing session yeah. and. We had a. We just t- took off our shirts, shirts you know, because we were just so hot. You put a feather uh, over it, and it just hits the ceiling <laughs> in a second, right? <laughs> so yeah. just, you know, the the and the AB is a little bit. Uh, one thing I'll say about the, the the AB is like not very dialed in. Like they really unbias that AB, so so it's low. like runs really cool in AB, but and and the sound starts to suffer, and then in A it's like glorious, like you're in heaven. Yeah, it's like heaven on earth. Yeah, but like it's just hot. <laughs> I I love Class A sound. I listen to it every day. Yeah, at my desk. Yeah, but only thirty watts of Class A, and I have to force cool that amp with two fa- two fans. Yeah, on the medium setting. Um, talked about force Ugh. cooling my LFJ, right? I was yeah. just like looking up the one hundred twos, and I'm just like, oh yeah. You I'm just like, I want, I want one. There's some on the market right now. Anyways. That's my Great. recommendation. It's a little cheaper. Thought I'd throw it out there. Love it, man. So, uh, yeah, Darren, thanks for that recommendation. And, and uh, Mike, best of luck with this uh, and your awesome sounding system there, uh, especially anchored by your giant Dunlavies that we love. 
Um, okay, next email comes from David from the Netherlands and uh, Netherlands, and this one is a uh, like a few music suggestions. So we're gonna share them. Um, David writes, "Hi, Darren and Duncan. I really enjoy listening to listening to your intelligent, eloquent way of communicating. I think we wanted to read this just so we could." Read the yeah, the, just the, read that part. That's the nice parts. And that's the why we're doing that, it. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> thanks yep. for your effort, energy, and insights. Oh, he says it's his favorite podcast. While listening, I have discovered. Some I didn't nice hear that. Jazz. What, what, did he, what did he say? Uh, <laughs> I really enjoy listening to your intelligent, eloquent way of communicating with each other in my favorite podcast. It's like, thank you, David. <laughs> that's a nice compliment. Um, Thanks for your effort, energy, and insights. While listening, I've discovered some nice new jazz, such as Or Barricat, awesome. Uh, Dave Holland, uh, which is his favorite mm. uh, new jazz there, and, and Myra Dallin. Some other genres I listen to on a regular basis is electronic music, as do I, as do you, uh, such as, and so here are some recommendations of him, uh, Kang Ding Ray, K-A-N-G-D-I-N-G, one word, and then the next word is Ray, and the album is called Stabil, S-T-A-B-I-L. And the song is called Nine. So that's a recommendation in uh, electronic from David. Second recommendation here is an uh, artist called Alva Noto, A-L-V-N-O-T-O. And the album Hybrid, which is spelled capital H, capital Y, lowercase b, lowercase r, colon, uppercase I, uppercase D, and then space I. So hybrid I or hybrid one. Then song would be Oval Hadron 2. Uh, sounds like totally electronic music by the name of it. Third recommendation here is by uh, Trenta Muller. And uh, the album is The Digital Chronicles. And the song is Claude's Major or McLaren. A couple songs there. So uh, great recommendations from David. Um, I actually still need to dig into these um, because I've been going through the electronic releases from last week. Sometimes I get the opportunity to really dig into a whole Friday's releases and I kind of power through them and I go genre to genre to genre and then by like Sunday I have nothing new to listen to and I'll, you know... Oh, it's been a couple down weeks, like here and there in the last month or two. But sometimes there's so much good stuff that as soon as there's something good, you want to sink into it. So then that delays you listening to other things. And so I'll be, it'll be Thursday and I'll still be going through new releases from last Friday. Cause there'd be so many good little nuggets and gems and weird stuff. And, um, this is kind of one of those weeks and last week was like that too. So there's just been a lot of good new stuff lately, but only today I started working through the new releases in the electronic genre. And I uh, found a lot of a few really great new releases today. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I didn't have a chance to check those out yet, but we'll, thank you, David from the Netherlands for listening and for your recommendations. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Last email for today uh, comes to us from Bill Givens. And Bill Givens of uh, Magnetic Cinema is his company, it looks like. Doesn't say where he is, but 
Bill writes, Hey, D&D, love the podcast and wanted to share a YouTube live event that will be of interest to you both. Enjoy and keep up the great show. What this is, is a YouTube channel. Uh, and I wanted to share this because it's incredible. Um, really appreciate that. Um, Bill and uh, I wanted to share it with the listening audience. It is Avishai Cohen Trio, the Avishai Cohen, the bass player. And it's a YouTube channel called Art Concert, Arte Art, with A-R-T-E, spelled A-R-T-E, Concert, second word. That is the YouTube channel. So if you just search for Art Art Concert, Arte Concert, I'm not sure how they pronounce that. Or you could search for Avishai Cohen Trio, Shifting Sands, is I guess the name of this um, concert, but... It's incredible. Just a little bit, a little quick listen here on the computer, and you can tell that this thing is recorded really well, which is something we'll get into. I want to watch it on my system on the TV. On the big TV. We're going to have to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Except how are you going to do that? I have my TV connected to my DAC. Okay. Through optical. Okay. Okay, Yeah. Great. Yeah. And you can go to YouTube on on the TV. That's right. Yep. Um, So anyway, uh, everybody who's an Avishai Cohen fan... Watching his trio live actually is just like a real special treat. Um, it's Man, recorded I love that incredibly. Band. God, yeah, yeah, they're so good. They're just so good. They're so good. So yeah, uh, thanks, Bill, for that recommendation, and to everybody else, please check that out. You will yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, that was a great recommendation, Bill. Yeah, and uh, that is the end of the email inbox this week. Um, We've got a couple extra we're we're gonna save and uh, maybe one that we're gonna save for a us more of a streaming expert guy and that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, really appreciate all the questions everyone sends. Please uh, do not hesitate if you've got a question, uh, send it to hi-fi at outlook.com. Also, if you've got a great album that sounds awesome on your you know well dialed in audio file system. Um, it should sound great on, on other great systems too. So please don't keep that to yourself and share it with us. Um, and at the same email, hi-fi at outlook.com, uh, you can, you can send those along, but without further ado, we're kind of, we didn't go super long winded on our intros and we didn't kind of blasted through those, those questions. So we're here at the topic. So I guess we'll We'll sit here and stay a while because it's it's going to be a really fun topic, um, especially for me, just coming up or digging up a lot of old memories of of recording days. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> on the topic of recording, um, and specifically instruments and specific instruments, uh, recording difficulty. Um, what made you think of this topic? Just curious. Uh, it's that you have a lot of knowledge when it comes to recording and we don't talk about it often. Mm. And it's that recordings are really, they shape everything we do. Yeah. They shape everything that we do. The more that we can discuss, uh, about recording quality and, uh, and just become more aware of, of how things, for instance, hearing an instrument and understanding a little bit more how it's mic'd, it can help us so much 
as yeah. audio files. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times I'm listening with you and I'll be, you know, either listening to the music or list, or thinking about the gear or something like that. And you're, and you may, you mention, oh, I think he's got like, uh, I think he's got some sort of, uh, you know, DI mixed with, uh, some sort of microphone, mm-hmm. you know, on the bass right now. And you'll, you'll come in with a comment like that. And I'm just like, man, like, I'm not thinking like that at all. And a lot of that kind of thought process I can think, or I think can really help us, uh, yeah. It can help us kind of distinguish what's in the recording. How well can we hear the details of what's going on in the recording mm-hmm. and to distinguish between uh what might be distortion and what might be a recording distortion or what might be the the instrument or perhaps maybe a distortion of of the method that was used yeah. um, to record and you picking right. up on that, right. That specific sound of, of the way that something is, is recorded. So, um, I just, I want to talk more about recordings on, on this podcast. Cause I think that it's something audiophiles do not talk enough about. Um, and you, you know, a lot about recording you've done, um, I think you've recorded like over 150 mm-hmm. uh, bands and, yep. and you're uh, very knowledgeable on it. So yeah, that's why I recommended this uh, topic. Yeah. Um, I see things like this Avishai Cohen trio YouTube video that I think that uh, Bill recommended and, and um, I instantly, you know, I, I hear a certain level of, production and and excellence in the mixing and that kind of thing and that is where my mind goes <clears throat> i i stop at all the audiophile stops as well but if it's good i start focusing on like how are, you know how are they doing this and just with the example of that youtube uh video that we were recommending um from bill uh of avishai cone trio you can see I could see I'm counting, you know, eight or nine different uh, mics on the drums. And um, before I even saw the close mics on the drums, I could tell that they were all, all the, every drum with skin has, was close mic'd and um, the bass drum. Then I started focusing on it and I see the bass drums double mic'd. And then, you know, you've got the overhead mics, but you've got a third overhead mic. So I'm always thinking of like, I see what's there and then how would I mix that? And I, I thought that the Avishai Cohen, the drums were extremely well mixed. And I think that's the only way that you can legitimately pull off a, like a nine microphone setup on drums is if you're really good at mixing, because there's all kinds of opportunity to mess up phase between your different mics and to blur some, uh, parts of the drum kit. And so, yeah, I've been there. I've, I've, I've mic drums all kinds of different ways and mic bass a lot of ways. And so when you mentioned this topic, I was stoked about it just cause, uh, I can just start going off, but I love the, uh, specificity of like, you know, the simplest versus the hardest instruments to record. And that kind of mm-hmm. makes sense. So, um, 
as a way to categorize different different instruments and talk about the different styles of recording. So, mm-hmm. what do you want to start first? Most difficult or or easiest? Uh, easiest. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've got an interesting one. Uh, one of the easiest instruments that I think to record. Um, I mean, there's there's. I'll start with this example because it doesn't seem like it would be easy, but it is if you if you learn this trick. And um, I've done it on a lot of different ones of these, and every single time it comes out great. So I'll describe recording of a marimba because I think a marimba is actually like one of those instruments where you can get a really, really um, predictable and um, audiophile and enjoyable result with just following this this procedure but this goes way back in the day when i had uh, a group with marimba coming through the studio and it was a marimba it was a he might have been he might have brought a vibraphone but i used i did the same thing on on marimbas when i had a i had an all marimba it was a marimba school where people go to learn the marimba it's in town in boulder and they wanted to bring seven or eight marimbas into our studio and our studio is not big enough to, to even yeah, hold i don't think you have enough mics for all that too no no and i and i wanted to record these in stereo so it's like no you know like i didn't have enough mics but we didn't have enough space in this room to fit seven marimbas i mean that's an enormous uh square footage shared that you need so we ended up getting three in there i think so I recorded three marimbas going crazy in the room together but this this first recording is where i learned this technique and it was for a vibraphone flamenco guitar and violin i believe and it was the um rim of the well guys no it was just it was just flamenco guitar and, and vibraphone uh there's only two of the guys and later you and i recorded that band when they had four players they had tabla and violin as okay. well Remember, I thought this was the, the time that Gary Burton showed up. No, this guy's... Well, that's <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> that's funny because the guy who plays vibraphone is professor is a professor of percussion at CU mm. and studied under Gary Burton. Learned the, the formal technique. I forgot technique. that. I forgot, yeah. I forgot yeah, that he Doug, studied under Gary. That's Doug Walter. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, Douglas Walter. That's crazy. Um, yes, yeah, so he does the formal technique. Um, but anyway, so I, I was... I was going into this recording without having a great grasp on how I was going to, or how you're supposed to record vibraphone and marimba. So I started searching around online. And one of the great things about the pro audio community is there's a lot of documentation, a lot of, it's almost audiophile esque in terms of the amount of like knowledge that's, that's shared from people's experiences on forums um, where, and even to the, to a, to a larger degree than the audiophile scene, there are a lot of great articles from excellent recording engineers explaining techniques online. One great resource, if you're, if you're curious about recording or, or you want to, uh, find a, a resource to just learn as much as you can about recording is a British magazine called Sound on Sound, Sound on on sound and uh it is it is one of the finest it's one of the oldest recording magazines it's just been crushing for a long time and it's 
Um, I think the last time I looked, they let you see, they put all their magazines online, but five months after they publish so that you'll subscribe to the magazine. But what that means is that you've got a giant archive that you can search through and it's all Googleable. So, you know, a lot of times you'll find sound on sound articles popping up in your Google searches when you're searching like how to record a marimba, for example. And there was this great article written by uh, some recording engineer where they uh, actually went in depth and tried 10 different miking styles uh, for the marimba. Now, this is assuming, I believe all of them are stereo, if, if not most of them. This is assuming you want to get that stereo spread of the marimba from left to right. You know, low notes on the left and high notes on the mm-hmm. right. Um, which actually for the player's position, I believe I'm trying to, I'm trying to picture it. No, I think that's, I think that's, um, how it is to the player. It's it? higher notes to the right. I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember if it's low notes to the right or in high notes to the left or what with marimba, but I think it's low notes to the left. Anyway, um, there were these 10 different approaches taken and, as you get into recording, you realize that even for stereo, there's like six or seven different ways that you can do stereo. And Alan Bloomline, um, famous for in pro audio for the Bloomline pair, but famous in hi-fi audio for kind of being the, the, the first champion of stereo uh, in the thirties and doing a lot of stereo recording experiments and, he had a number of patents and he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And, um, he, uh, died in a training accident because he was doing some top secret stuff for the military in, in Great Britain. And because it was a top secret mission that he died on, uh, he, his death was kind of quiet and, and like people didn't know what happened and, and, um, I don't know. I my understanding is that, is that like his real big contributions to audio were kind of um, celebrated more posthumously than they were at the time. But um, the Bloomline pair is when you have a pair of figure eight microphones, like the ones you and I are talking into right now. So we're talking into one side of the microphone, but we could talk into the other side and just be out of phase, right? Because it's a bipolar microphone setup it's a ribbon so it's got a ribbon that takes in information from the backside. that's actually why we've got this kind of a little bit of a room echo just a little bit to yours and my podcast because when we talk when i speak my voice is being picked up a little bit out of phase in your channel right mm-hmm. and yours picked up a little out of phase in my channel so it gives it a little bit of this like ambiance thing yeah and so that's the kind of mentality that recording engineers use to like um, pick a microphone or pick pick a style of microphone or a polar pattern of the microphone um, for the spice. See, to a recording engineer, everything is a spice or can be, right? You You think very rarely in terms of purity of sound or linearity or like total neutrality, right? You think of things as adding color and you think of the processes that you can take on as providing a perspective, right? Mm. So, um, 
So anyway, uh, Bloom Line pairs two figure eight microphones aligned with their figure eight polar pattern perpendicular to each other and with their capsules on top of each other so that any sound source sends uh, sound the way of the microphones that the sound wave hits both microphones at the exact same time so that you have, you know, they're, they're locked in phase, right? But they're amplitude differences that, that give you that spatial information. Um, and there's different, there's spaced microphone arrays just for recording stereo, which is spacing the stereo microphones apart. And so then the, it's phase and amplitude differences that, that when translated, when listened to back by the human brain is interpreted as location, you know, so you can locate things in the stereo field. Um, and so you can, um, there's a thing called the Faulkner array where you take two, uh, Omni microphone or two figure eight microphones like these ribbons and you space them 10 centimeters apart and aim them straight ahead. And, um, why 10 no, centimeters? Yeah. It's just, there's these standards, right? Where people in the past figured this out. It's called the Faulkner race. It's named after someone named Faulkner who decided that this was how he liked to do it. Mm -hmm. Any wider and maybe, maybe the phase differences were too much or the, or something overtook the other thing, like the amplitude overtook the phase or something like that wasn't balanced enough. But what's great about the Faulkner array is that you have both, it's like you have a pair of speakers that are not towed in at all. They're just straight ahead. So, but these are the microphones with the polar pattern. So if you put them up, if you imagine a figure eight, you're picking up information in the front and the back, but nothing on the sides. Mm -hmm. So you, that's what you know about figure eight microphones is you have a null on the sides. So you can use that to your advantage. And what you can do is in a symphonic hall, you can get a Faulkner array closer uh, or no further away than you can other types of microphone recording techniques because the side nulls take the room echo out of the equation more than other recording styles. So yeah, Faulkner used it to record classical music and he would be able to move his ribbons further back and, uh, and get a broader perspective on the orchestra while you and I ran into this when we started recording things in a big room. You listen back and you realize that the room has so much influence on your hearing, so much room that you have to move the mics closer than you, you thought you, you would, you know, as audiophiles getting into recording or whatever. So anyway, this list for recording the marimba went through all these different stereo configurations and things. And I'll just cut to the chase to say the one that they said was the best and the one that I started using and I agree is incredible is uh, at the ends of the marimba you take uh, figure eight microphones so I had in my studio I had six different mics that had a figure eight pattern and so I do them in pairs and um, but in this one situation I just had the one marimba so you do it a foot uh, on on each side of the marimba uh, you do a foot wider than the marimbas is where you place the microphone stand and a foot uh, away from the player, right, from the marimba. So you're diagonally, what, just a little less than a foot diagonally from the corners of the 
of the marimba or the vibraphone. And then you point both microphones toward the center key of the vibraphone and marimba. And, and, oh, it's a, it's a foot apart, a foot wide and a foot above. That's what it was. Foot wide and a foot above and point them toward the center key and bam, it's, it's this locked presentation where you, where you do it well, or you have it in a good room and some isolation to it. Uh, and you can just get these floating keys where no matter what they play, it's the same amplitude really evenly across the soundboard. Um, so yeah, I would say like that stands out to me because it was a really simple, like, Oh yeah, of course, you know, that kind of makes sense. Uh, recommendation and then you try it and I've tried it across a whole bunch of marimbas and and vibraphones and it's just it's like a go-to it's like no brainer this is this is the greatest way to do it and uh, and I guess that that leads that leads into other discussions of like is harder or worse or more difficult or easier or harder instruments to record because um you're starting to think about like all things considered, like I, there's not a lot of variation in this recording method where other things like, like putting a, a mic on the 12th fret of a guitar, like it, it really depends on the guitar as to how good that'll sound. There's a lot of variation among guitars that'll make that rule of thumb, like not as, not as sticky. Yeah. This, this one's uh one you can trust in. So that's kind of where I start with the easiest. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I was not expecting that. Yeah, I thought easiest. I'd toss I was, that out. I was expecting a um, like a horn, right? And I, I was going to mention horn as like the obvious. I started going to this saying like, well, there's obvious things to say, but then I want to say this because it turned out that it's really dependable. Um, but you're right. Like most horns, um. Omni microphone capsules are tiny. And so you can actually get a great Omni mic in a really small package. Mm-hmm. And as, assuming there's no environmental things you deal with, like wind and stuff like that, or breath, like our plosives, puh, 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 um, mounted on the bell. And so that would be like the easiest if, not, if I didn't want to like talk about marimba first. But Now, how, how um, the, the, the trumpet, for instance is uh one of the other instruments that kind of competes with a drum kit in loudness acoustically yeah, yeah. um <clears throat> how how does the loudness and the directivity of the trumpet play into yeah. recording it is it Good is question. it is that does that make things more difficult tons yeah because uh and i actually think of banjo in the same way um Oh yeah. For the reason that you're just talking about any ensemble that has these instruments in them, the other instruments that generally play with those instruments. So banjo will be in a bluegrass band or a folk band. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other instruments in a bluegrass or folk band are stand up bass, acoustic guitar, acoustic guitar is the quietest stand up bass Mm -hmm. can be the next quietest. And then mandolin, which is just, you know, can be fairly loud if regressively played, but in general, compared to a banjo, it's nothing. So banjo is just like a snare drum with a guitar on it, you know? 
and it's and wherever you point it it's just this column of sound that's just like immense um drums any kind of live uh band that has drums if you ever see a live band in a small small room everything they do amplification wise with all the other instruments is to try to get them up to the level of the natural snare drum you know because it's just so stinking loud compared to the rest of the stuff so yeah like horns are the same way the beauty with really excellent bell mics uh so they're just like small omnis and then they have these short little gooseneck clips and is that horn players like to move and gesture and but they have to keep their lips locked to the um mouthpiece and so they're they're emoting as they're playing which means they're moving their bells so it's it can be a little restrictive to the player to have fixed microphones that horn players need to play into um the problem is that you just well i just don't have any problem with bell mics uh i've i've had some great recordings from people really good players who have invested in their bell mic and they bring it with them and they take care of it. And then they, I listen to it and the, the horn's got nuance and it's got all this stuff and, and it's so close that you don't like with violin. There's a saying that says that you want to record the room, not the rosin, which is to say that you don't want to get too close to a violin. So you can get more of the amassed sound that includes the room and less of like the, the, the rosin area where you, you where the, the, bow. The, the bow is like gripping the string. Yeah. Really yeah. close to the bridge. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. And you can do that on purpose. Some players like to do that cause it gives it all this texture and it's can be an audiophile thing. Mm-hmm. But the standard tradition is to get more of the, the violin as a whole, uh, to go further back from it. But, um, there's none of that with a, with a trumpet. It's not like the closer you get to the bell, the more you hear the breath or the more you hear like when they're emptying their spit valve or something weird like that, you know, like it's just, it's just pure trumpet sound. So, uh, so I'm big on bell mics. I have recorded trumpets with like, you know, large cardioids or figure eight before. And one of the interesting things about a ribbon mic uh, and the reason that David Royer has a patent on his style of ribbon microphone, the only thing that he did that he patented, which actually gets licensed a lot still, is that he moved the ribbon uh, like closer to the source of music, of sound, and thereby increased its power handling capabilities because these ribbons are you know, several microns thick and that's it. In fact, making this pair that you and I are talking into was sweat inducing, like one of the hardest DIY projects I've ever undertaken. Um, because the ribbon's so thin, you have to cut it and you have to corrugate it and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, what he did was he moved his ribbons forward so that when they are hit with massive sound pressure, they actually move back, uh, from the wave the the ribbon is affected by moving backward which moves it into the center of the magnetic flux rather than being in the center and then moving away from the magnetic flux and getting less efficient the microphone gets more efficient with higher spl so that's david royer's patent and uh and it was a really 
Hmm. It's a, it's a reason why Royer mics are like the go to for ribbons in any studio that you go to, most studios that you go to, because mm-hmm. they're f- relatively affordable and they can handle high SPLs. So I've done ribbons with trumpets before, but I didn't have Royers, and so it wasn't the best result. It was fine. I just didn't get anything more from that than I ever got with great bell mics. So I did have a band that I recorded once that was an all brass instrument band. Uh, see if I remember they're from Louisiana, they're from new Orleans. Um, they had a really long name that was kind of funny, but, uh, everybody had bell mics except for, oh, and they had one keyboard player and then everybody else played, uh, brass. They had a tuba player and I was, so I actually go up to the tuba guy and I was like, how, how do you like to be miked? He was like, oh, just, just put a, put the, like a vocal mic, like in there. And I was like, in where? He's like, in the in the horn. Just stick it in there. <laughs> so he did. So we did. We just like not nothing else. Just dropped it into his tuba. What? Yeah, and it and it stuck in the horn, in the and he played a tuba around it. Yeah. <sighs> and this was a a sure like vocal mic, like a SM58 wow. or something that could just handle the pressure, and it was great. The recording came out great. Dirty, 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 rotten river bottom band or something like that. It was one of those kind of names. I don't yeah. Know. That's interesting. Yeah, those mics can really take a good amount of SPL. Unbelievable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you think about mics that you want to cherish and take care of, and you just like treat them with baby gloves and try not to bump them and anything like that. You mm-hmm. know, with these ribbons, try not to breathe on them too hard or let the wind get them. And, and then you've got mics that can just handle like being around some of these instruments when it's go time. It's just incredible. The amount of SPL that can yeah. g- generate off of, let alone that close because of the inverse yeah. square law. It's yeah. It's, right. It would right. go way up really quickly. I mean, you could easily get, I don't know, but you could get over 120. So quick, so close. Absolutely. Probably. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the range where the better, High SPL mics are is 120, 130, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, some of the Earthwork stuff is rated like 150 plus. Yeah, and we were yeah. looking at the Earthworks. There's two versions of their Omnis when you and I were looking at them, and uh, there's a lower SPL version and a higher SPL version of the. Same. I don't know where you'd, you know, see 150 in. I don't know where you music. want to, man. That your <laughs> that, hearing's that's... not gonna last very long if you're up. <laughs> well, even if it's like really close to something, you know. And you're well, getting a higher amount. It's just like 150 is really ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah, 150 is real high. You could, I guess, maybe you're recording jet engines or something really close. Uh, you mic a you mic a a big guitar cabinet on stage at stage volume where the guitar cabinet is like the bulk of the sound, not necessarily that you're pulling it through the PA, um, but you're and then like getting it off the soundboard the perhaps the microphone's there for recording or something but you can get maybe, I mean, maybe off guitar speakers pretty high maybe SPL. it's 125 130 in that case i think it's just a flex you know they got some headroom there i think so but 150 would be pretty just i don't know i could be wrong but i do remember it seems like it'd be pretty hard to encounter that in real life those mics were uh saying that they were linear up to 50 kilohertz too 
Yeah. Not just 20. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the Earthworks makes amazing microphones. Yes, they do. We use that actually to um, measure our speakers. Uh, oh. So yeah. the FR30 and, uh, and uh, future speakers that we're designing, uh, the measurement microphone is a Earthworks oh. 50 kilohertz mic. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, bells of of brass instruments would be would be really the easiest. I just wanted mm-hmm. to mention the marimba thing. Okay, so before we jump over to the hardest instrument, oh, we could keep going on easiest for a little while. We we I know we could, but I I have a question for you. Okay, that is different than what we previously proposed. Um, what's your favorite instrument to record? That's a good question. Um, probably gonna say upright bass. Yeah, you um, talk a lot about bass miking because I've done it. I've done a lot of different ways to do it, and I've encountered a lot of different basses. It's one of those things where, like, it fascinates me because it's a challenge, and it's not like I enjoyed the marimba miking method because of the results that you can get from it and i suppose there's a little bit of that with the upright bass because i have on some occasions recorded upright bass in a way that made me extraordinarily happy with the result just like not expecting to have all of these elements just fall in place um, I've had other recordings of upright bass where it's just really disappointing um, and challenging. And and like I said, I've heard a lot of basses, and basses range, and they're so variable in terms of how they're going to sound, where the sound is going to come out. You, you try to pick one spot, and you're talking about a large instrument that makes omnidirectional sound, and sound can come out of all kinds of places. So, um, I've heard great basses and bad basses. I've had great bass players come into my studio and they didn't have their bass with them because it didn't ship or it didn't fly with them, but they borrowed a bass from somebody locally and they absolutely hated that bass. Like I've done recordings like that and I thought it sounded fine. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of variability, I think with bass, um, Mm. upright basses. You also have a lot of like room interaction, And, uh, you know, I mean, reproducing the bass is so difficult on our systems. You know, the stand-up bass is is an acid test a lot of times to the room and the speaker positioning. uh, Reproducing it is the same issues as recording it. And that's kind of what I was getting at. I'm sure, like, you know, where the bassist is standing in the room or... Yeah, room size. So, yeah. so it's almost like your your solution with your subwoofers, where you you near field them to take the room out of the equation. Mm-hmm. It's like the best way to record bass is to is to record it right up close and utilize certain certain things to get those uh, low vibrations to be linear and accurate. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but the uh you sometimes mention like a mix of DI yeah. and yeah. and microphone. What do you think about that? Like- yeah, so uh, great, great question. And that is exactly where I, I have 
uh, evolved to go with recording bass. And it's where I, it's what I see. It's what I saw with the Avishai mm-hmm. Cohen over there. Um, I saw a microphone that he was in most of the time playing. He was a foot and a half away from it. And it was on a short little stand that, and it was located around the, around the height of his F holes, which are just a little bit higher than the bridge, I would say. Um, but I could see this really thin wire coming down and you could only see it in certain shots of the Savishai Cohen video, uh, where you could see the stand. So the stand is a post that comes out the bottom of it. And you could see this, this little glint of light off of something next to it. And I know that that is cause these, these, these DI onboard microphones on that you can mount on bases have really, really thin leads. Like they don't have a big XLR connector cause it's a very small, um, transducer. And so they generally have a, like a, like a long, really thin lead and then it leads to a XLR plug and that kind of thing. So, um, so I could tell that, that he was doing a mix there cause it is. So the, the reason is because your ability to pick up on a microphone, a bass, an upright bass in all its glory and all the stuff that we love about audiophile upright bass, uh, is besides the, you know, the higher frequency stuff, the mid range clarity and the, the, the fact that you can hear obviously knuckles hitting the board or the fact that you can hear someone plucking and, and experience that, um, you you can't it's really difficult to pick up the very low frequency stuff linearly from a microphone and the reason is a couple fold uh, one of the reasons is that different microphone designs give you different bass responses versus distance so there's a type of microphone called a pressure microphone and there's a type of microphone called a pressure gradient microphone pressure gradient um uh, cardioid microphones fall into this category and dynamic microphones as well and wherein pressure gradient the gradient means that the farther you are away from the pressure source the lower the response uh will be in the in the frequency response of the microphone um pressure microphones like ribbon microphones that we're talking into uh actually are pick up bass uh irrespective of the distance just based on amplitude in the room and and how the wave is propagating through the room. Mm. Uh, And so really great microphones for bass are ribbon microphones or certain omnidirectional microphones or uh, what are they called? Pressure, pressure gradient microphones. No. Uh, Boundary microphones. Doesn't doesn't Crown make some boundary? Yeah, they they they, they do, and we were looking at those because what's f- one one fun way to record things um, is to get yourself in a location where you have a giant boundary where you can place those. Sometimes, and and these are often used in theater productions for the stage. They're called stage microphones, and they're mounted flat on the stage. And they pick up everything that strikes that boundary and uses that boundary to load certain waves. And that's mm-hmm. why you can get a great bass response from those. Aside from the fact that they're omni microphones, which means they're pressure pressure microphones. So they pick up bass just great. Um, but when you, some people will put like an artificial wall up across from a quartet of string players and mount two of these things as spaced omnis. 
And so they'll use the, <clears throat> the baffle uh, that they're mounted on and any waves that hit this surface, when waves are hitting a surface they reflect off of, they reach an energy minimum at the, at the boundary and then they change directions and go back up to their energy, um, their, their, their potential maximum and their energy maximum, I guess when they're going, when they're, when they're at the boundary, their, their potential maximum and energy minimum. And so anyway, um, a boundary is a great place to, it's a great thing to use to record uh, full frequency and to get, get a great linear response. Um, but anyway, when you're recording a bass and you're you're trying to give room for the basses to move. I mean, we were watching Avishai play, and he's moving his bass all over because he's moving his body all over because he's really emoting. He's really getting into it. So that's why you know you have a real benefit with both close miking and a mixture of taking some of these um, instrument born born vibrations and turning them into the recording. Now, if you've ever heard enough di transducers from acoustic instruments especially specifically right now bass um you know that it sounds unnatural at the top end uh the top end i can i can listen and hear and and just point out a di a total a t completely di mic'd um upright bass by by di i mean an onboard transducer which is something similar to it's usually a bridge mounted transducer and it goes it works on vibration and it's a little bit similar to um, a guitar pickup in the sense that i believe it's like a moving coil type of thing and it uses the the uh, vibrations of the bridge to reproduce to to send this signal that is basically not a microphone in space so it really you could snap your fingers next to it and it won't won't pick mm. it won't send that signal to the board um but you touch the bass in any kind of way that makes any of it vibrate and it will definitely send it what's great about that <clears throat> is that it does the lowest of frequencies superbly in fact sometimes artificially like great it's like sometimes you and i here will have an audiophile track that's like got too much sub bass and we talk about it because your your subs are so dialed in that it's it's really apparent to us when we're hearing a recording where we suppose that their sub bass monitoring was a little subpar because it's a little overloaded and so sounds like they're compensating from having like mm -hmm. lack of linearity in the control room. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so you can pick up things like when you put your hand on a bass string to rest it or to mute, you move that bass string a little bit. Those kind of things can activate these onboard DI pickups and will send a, four hertz signal or 10 or something mixed in with this other stuff on a really linear system with your 18 dual 18 inch subwoofers that are right behind us in the couch we can sense that so I, i've listened to recordings where i can hear the hand resting because it's sub sub bass like below human hearing where you can feel it and you're like yeah that's that's up too high a and they're mm. direct miking this b 
and uh and you know it's it's a bit unnatural what i always like to do was use the strengths of the di and then use uh use another microphone and mix them together <clears throat> now because we're talking about pretty low frequencies like you don't need to worry as much about getting both capsules of both mics aligned perfectly with the distance between you know the strings and the and the mics um because you know phase differential when you're when you're when you're using two mics to record one one subject any difference distance change with those microphones will result in um phase cancellation and that kind of stuff at the frequencies that deal with i believe it's it's the half wave for the distance um so vocal mics you don't want a lot of variation with the distance of these things but something like bass you can handle it a little bit so you got the di pickup i like to i like to bring that in maybe 20 percent of what you're hearing and then 80 percent will be a really well-placed pretty close mic i generally tell bass players don't move too much and try to keep this thing about a foot away from your f holes or whatever but my favorite way of micing a bass was shown to me by a, a local bass player um who used to play with um the guy from yonder mountain string band um the lead singer and the and the mandolinist who died later i can't remember his name now but this guy eric eric thorin is the bass player and he showed me this technique he would take he took an sm58 or sm57 from sure um I don't use the SM57 for a lot of things, um, but there, this is one of them. He he said, uh, this is a little trick that someone showed me one time. He took a s sock. I think he had one in his base bag just because he loves recording this way. But he took an SM57, wrapped a sock around it, and then in his base strings below, just below the bridge, he spread them apart just enough really didn't even need to move them that much because it's really like a perfect fit, but stuck that SM57 in there so that when he released the strings, the strings were were holding the SM57 in place. So you really just, with a sock around it so that you don't like get, get the strings rubbing on the body of the S SM57, I guess, but you just, you just jam the SM57 into the strings below the bridge and then you you bring in the di pickup and you have 20 percent di 80 percent sm57 <clears throat> and it's incredible it's mm. incredible incredible way to mic the bass like chewy uh articulate uh full of body just just glorious and and round and thick and 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 uh in linear so yeah and then the bass player can move around if they want you know they don't have to worry about being in a trying to play to a mic that's on a stand so yeah that's that's been a real um that was a a great recommendation from him and one that i've used many times since uh eric came through the studio and every single time it delivers so yeah um but up until that point where i was trying to use you know, a microphone at a distance with, with basses, you know, it's just a struggle. It's, it was difficult. It's, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. Glad you asked that. Cause that yeah. is one of my favorite little, 
little tricks there. All right, so uh, moving on to what's the hardest? Yeah, uh, human voice. Really? Yes. You know why? Really? Because we hear it all the time? Because we have brains. There's a brain (laughs) behind the voice. That's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, it's just uh, what you're always looking for is consistency, right? And... um, I know a lot of audiophile listeners out there have experienced this because I have, but you know, and I don't think it's just because I'm tuned into it because I've done a lot of recording, but I've listened to tons of albums where you play it, <clears throat> you play the first track, and instruments start to track, right? And so you have this instrument intro, and everything is really like crisp and well recorded and well placed and. Um, you know, and enjoyable to listen to. And then all of a sudden the vocal comes in to start singing the song, you know, and there's a character to the vocal that's different from the character to the instruments, right? It's like mm. the vocal has affected, has effects on it and has EQ on it. Mm-hmm. And, and on an audiophile system, often the voc- that means the vocal comes across shrouded in some way. Um, where the rest of the instruments, you're just like, this is really present and it's really like happening with these instruments and the vocal track is so much different. Like what in the heck? Um, first of all, as I've done a lot of recording and I've also done a lot of mastering and invariably in, in the role of mastering, when, when something's given to you and and you're doing work because people know the work that you've done before and know what you can do and that kind of thing. If, if there's a problem like that, where you're like one of these tracks sounds a lot different than the other track, or if there's a problem like this thing is too compressed, it's, or it's, it's too high in the mix or it's just, it's squashed and the other things are open. Like what, what's the deal? 10 times out of 10 times if you ask the mix engineer that or the recording engineer like what's up with this track the answer is always something went wrong and i had to do this to basically fix it Mm -hmm. it's always the case because recording is expensive recording time is just extraordinarily expensive but it's also like and it's and it's a lot of time for a bunch of people that have to get together to make it happen and then it's also like all of those people at every minute of every recording are are putting everything they can into the moment and trying to do everything right to the point where when you get through that and you realize that something was wrong and you've got to do it again, it's actually it's incredibly emotionally taxing, right, to, to think about like all the people individually have to go back to square one and try it again, try to do their absolute best each time there again. And so the, the, and so you get into these situations where people don't want to redo it. So you got to make do with what you've got. And so you, you try this filter, you try that EQ, you try run it through this plugin, you try that thing. And so pretty soon you've got a track that's got all these touches on it. And then you've got all these other tracks that weren't touched 
that were recorded maybe with one mic so you don't have any phase issues right and you you give them a little space or or you record in a way that they're kind of spaced out and you have what's called gobos which are basically movable um big absorptive panels that you could put between in players so that their their instruments don't bleed into the other microphones but they can play near each other like they feel comfortable playing so um but then you get to like some vocal tracks and it's not just because something went wrong sometimes it's because the the psychological presence of that person that that they they were just struggling and the first take was the best and each time they have to redo it they're less confident and they start screwing other things up or they don't have the same feeling or they can't hit the same high note um, because their brain gets in the way and it's Mm -hmm. it's just like a big emotional thing Mm -hmm. and so you know you you, like i said anytime coming using audiophile ears if you go to a mix that is unmastered or whatever and and it and you can hear this disjointedness between the different tracks and that kind of thing. And what it is, is just like the vocal track is so different than the other tracks. It's always something like that. Like the artist coming back and saying, uh, I really would like a little more of this, or I, you know, can you, can you do this? And the, the trumpeter isn't coming back and saying, ah, can you, can you change this? Or can you add a little reverb or something like that? Mm-hmm. So, now, a uh, question that I have is, uh, with vocals, it seems to be that there are many different microphones that uh, recording engineers have in their arsenal in mm-hmm. order to, you know, bring out and like figure out what the right mic is for this singer. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like expand a little bit on that? Like, is there, sure. um, what's your, what, what are your thoughts about? like matching a microphone to a singer how does that work like is it just that yeah. you're is it trial and error like literally you're you're switching it out and asking them singing it and listening uh i would say there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about on that topic um there are there are musicians that everybody first of all looks at all of these things as like i said at the beginning like a spice or like a color in a palette um, to the point where it's not just microphones that people will will mix and match based on what they think will work best in the situation. It's microphone preamps. So back in the day, you know, if if you're a really good studio, you have, you have an array of vocal mic preamps that you can run it through, and they each have their own coloration. Um, API, Nev, um, SSL, um. You know, these are famous ones. Um, there's certain equalizers that people will re- request, like Poltec equalizers and stuff like that. And, um, and now, of course, digital audio workstations are so good, there's emulators for all of these. So you don't actually have to have all the outboard gear. It could be all inboard, which means on the computer. Um, but anyway, so but microphones are one of those things that still each microphone imparts so much character. It's like a speaker reversed how the speakers have the most distortion of the whole audio chain in a hi-fi audio system so does the microphone um there's a lot of different ways to make a microphone just like with speakers and the body of the microphone matters just like with speakers the cabinet um the you know little elements like the suspension like the 
like the diaphragm material. I mean, you 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 listen about you hear about gold sputtered, you know, uh, large diaphragm condensers and that kind of thing. Condensers versus dy- dynamic mics. First of all, dynamic mics are are garbage, but they're used on in in very high SPL situations. Mm. Uh, dynamic mics didn't exist. Condenser is a name, another word for capacitor, and a condenser mic has a has a low output and needs a needs a preamp and uh, much more. Well, they all need preamps, but needs a lot more gain than like a dynamic mic. Dynamic mics came out were born out of necessity because amplifier manufacturers were making guitar amps and you know so much louder and and concerts were reaching giant audiences and and think people like the Beatles needed to be extraordinarily loud um and be in extraordinarily loud environments and be able to like still record so um you know you make your choices first on i guess type of microphone i mean in general the vocal is one of the most important things if not the most important of of whatever you're recording in pop music for example the vocal any any pop mixing engineer knows the vocal carries 50% of the overall volume of the whole track i mean that's kind of standard industry mm. standard it's that important and so uh so yeah a lot of attention's paid to what kind of vocal mic is used what kind of um you know vocal mic preamp is used as well you you would never use a dynamic mic in a studio unless you're okay with just like that lesser quality the less linear it's got a it's got a frequency response it's got certain tip ups here and there i'll just take a standard sm58 stage mic from sure some people use those in the studio and there's not they're not studio mics they're stage mics you know and they've got this presence rise at 2.5k and they've got roll-offs at the top and bottom and they're, they're not linear at all so you know you always start with like what are my priorities and what does the band expect what does the band want you know as a recording engineer you just, all you want to do is deliver what the something that makes the band happy because that's what they're there for and so generally you 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 reach for your best microphones for the vocals um if you can you know um if I had a bevy of microphones and I had these ribbons, I might think about using one of the ribbons um and then what you do is you you study the the singer um because singers are people and they're they'll move certain people sing at a at a certain angle right and 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 like tilt their head a certain way when they get loud and some people are so used to playing on stage so much that they mix themselves. So they'll move away when they get louder and they'll move closer as they get quieter. And so you need to observe all this and be ready for it. And um, there's a degree to which you get a singer in your studio who really wants to mix themselves. So they're moving a lot, but you want them to actually never move as a recording engineer. Cause you want it all you want their voice to to manage the volume and you want you and your skill later on to manage the mixing, you know? And so you want to train people to like put a fist between their voice and the microphone and stay this distance only up away from this microphone at all times and try to sing and be artistic. And as soon as they 
enter that flow state where they they let go and connect with the what they're doing so that they don't have to think about every next word that they're doing and thinking about am I going to hit this note coming up and um when they pull it off all that all your your require your requests go right out the window cuz you you what you want is a great performance you know you don't mm-hmm. Your your goal at the end of it is not as a recording engineer to have that singer be three inches away from the microphone at all times. It's really just to get capture the uh, the great artistic take. So you need to be prepared for that kind of thing. So you study your your vocalist and you see how loud their plosives are. Like I couldn't use these ribbon mics. I couldn't have a singer singing right through these ribbon mics the way that we kind of talk into them um, because people's P's and B's and, and sometimes T's and stuff like that. will just, will just go right through this ribbon and really activate it and could be something that you need to scoop out with EQ later or whatever um, in these, in these little moments. So, but yeah, you start with your best microphone and you try to work on best placement so that you get all of the above. Um the the great the great performance, not necessarily like, you know. And so some recording engineers there's this old uh technique where uh, and then there's vocalists who prefer certain microphones. Um there was a band called the Motet from Denver that came through my studio and I recorded them and they actually sent their recording engineer or their sound engineer their traveling sound engineer who is really opinionated and just to watch over what i was doing and make sure that i wasn't messing it up and uh you know after the whole band was set up is something like 24 microphone inputs into my board that i'm trying to manage and live mix uh this wasn't this wasn't i was live mixing the two channels this wasn't uh mm-hmm. where i mix after the fact i was live mm-hmm. mixing and their vocalist comes in and for some reason someone one of our guys had brought in an SM7 sure SM7 it's like the the most common podcasting microphone that you see nowadays mm, everybody yeah, has okay yep yep i hate those microphones with a passion um for two reasons number one extremely insensitive they they need a lot of gain like more than most mic preamps have more than 48 db they need Mm. more like 55 Mm. um and number two if you listen to the source and if you listen to what's recorded they are not natural sounding they just don't sound exactly like what the person sounds like they they slightly bassy kind of no i would say the other way they're very clean what they come across Mm. as is very clean so you lose a bunch of detail and you lose some bass from what I understand. Mm. Now you can make this up with EQ and your with a really good mic pre. They require you to have an extraordinarily good mic pre, uh, low noise, high gain, and then, uh, and then you can shape it. But if you don't have the gain, your EQ is generally more noisy than a great mic pre. So it's just like, not a great situation to try to make up what you're missing with the SM7 when you have a 48 dB mic pre. So this guy demanded that he use this SM7 because he saw it sitting there, and and so I had to put it up there, and it was just the wrong microphone for the for the application, 
it's not a microphone for an extraordinarily noisy environment either. It has a, I think, hypercardioid shape. It has a car- cardioid polar pattern, but he had to put his, he had to basically almost swallow it and then, and then scream because I was recording this band in a room and all of the stuff was bleeding into the, all the other microphones. It's kind of like the way I like to record a band in the room. If you do that well, it's got this, it's got this quality to it. That's, that's, um, engaging and kind of feels like it the band was doing it all together in a room. Um, but it makes vocals extraordinarily hard. And, uh, so anyway, you know, you think about things like you position him in front of the snare drums so that like linearly so that the microphone basically his head is, is, is the baffle that's blocking the biggest pressure from the snare drum. And I'm still on the vocal track seeing, seeing it spike every time the snare drums hit, you know, but that ended up being just a really bad vocal recording because I didn't use the mic I wanted. I didn't because I didn't have the preamp for it. I was just pegging that preamp and that meant that when he really screamed into it, it was distorting and everything else about those recordings were fantastic. I got all the instruments perfectly, but because of this one decision that I made because of the pressure from the band's recording engineer, you know, really, really, uh, bummed to not get as good a vocal track vocal recording on those things and so uh one of the four videos that we shot the band actually requested that we don't that we didn't publish and we honored their request and i mean i wasn't happy with it either the the instrument instruments were incredible but then they ended up uh kicking that guy that vocalist out of the band like six months later something like that i don't know but he pitched a fit about the recording but it was kind of like his fault <laughs> i mean he just like there were ways he could have played that and we could have tried to do it but he was he i don't know he didn't want to wear in-ear monitors uh so he was in the room and he was raising his volume based on not being able to hear himself because he was in this chaotic live environment so so yeah i mean vocals man they're they're the hardest and that's kind of why is because there's so much variability. Another thing that I thought of when I was outside a minute ago is like, um, instruments, a lot of people when they're playing their instruments, their your, your head is static in the distance to the instrument and you have this great perspective, uh, of your two ears to really like take in the sounds that your instrument are, is making. And so people will dial in the sound of their instrument and they'll pick an instrument because of the way it sounds like a violin because of the way that it just sound just leaps off the soundboard, maybe thanks to like the lacquer or whatever. We've talked about that previously with the Stradivarius stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I've heard one in real life. It's crazy. People will pick drum kits based on how they sound at the on the drum stool. And, Mm -hmm. um, so what people do is they dial in the sound of their instruments. They'll pick strings, certain strings on the guitar so that it has a certain character, you know, they'll put new strings on when they're going to go record. So it has this like presence and this crispness and it's, it's good. Um, but everybody just, not as many people do that with their vocals unless they have a, 
a vocal coach who spends some time on the way that their vo- the way to manipulate your voice to like achieve what you want when recorded straight and acoustically. So, um, and I'm not talking about pop stars who have a trademark effect that they do. Like they always double up their vocals or they always do this plug in that makes them sound unique. I'm talking about just like normal singers. It's, it's the brain makes it so hard. It's because you, you just, you have too much to think about. So you just sing and however you sound is how it, how it ends up sounding. And so it's a challenge and that's why it's easier to really get use rules of thumbs and use best standards for instruments and really get a great result. Whereas the vocal is, is a challenge, something you have to jump through hoops and you have to work with the person and you have to pay attention to their psychological state and whether or not they, whether or not following your requests will pull them out of their artistic moment and that kind of thing. Cool. Well, Duncan, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, man. And uh, you're so. You know, I could talk You're very knowledgeable on recording and all this. So, you know, I could just chatter about it. Yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah, it was great to pick your brain today about about the. uh, I barely got started. And I know that. We'll have to to do this again. Maybe a part two. Yeah. We'll we'll ask you some other questions about about recording i appreciate the opportunity to brain dump on this stuff it's yeah yeah it's it was a lot of fun experiences and you know as i'm talking about these things i'm going through some of these recordings and in my mind and it's a it's a magical thing a recording a recording is a linear series of decisions that all affect each other Mm -hmm. and you can't because of the things at play the money the time time never stops and you just you're in there and you just make one decision and then another decision and another decision and yeah. you have to go and it's really it's really some very exciting to me about that well you know maybe this can um inspire some people to you know learn more about recording techniques and to be able to hear you know how instruments are being recorded and recordings yeah. and and then being able to bring that to the table as far as uh, you know our listening skills and the ability to uh to know how uh to pick that from recordings and to know how gear is showing that off and and being able to reveal certain aspects about the recording it, that so. is true it's like um getting to be friends with my friend Colin and his his uh proficiency is his amazing skills as a chef when he gives me some insight about how a dish is made and then he goes into further insight about the ingredients and characteristics of the ingredients that make it a a better recipe or make the recipe work and make it a better dish it heightens the eating experience. I mean, it mm-hmm. really does. I, and I feel the same way about no, it's just recordings are the, the beginning of everything. Yeah, you know, and, if we didn't have a good recording, it's like there's no use in in making great systems. Hundred um, percent. Like if 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 the source material was all trash, then there would be no point. So what that points to is that uh, we we as audiophiles we have to learn more about 
recording, educate ourselves more about recording. Uh, therefore, it will be something that will be talked about more and uh, and then leak more into the mainstream where we'll, we'll have, you know, the average studio might start uh, upping their game in, in recording. I know that's a, that's a pipe dream, but, you know, it's, if we really can do that, if we can tack uh, audio quality there, I think that's one of the most, um, that would be likely one of the most uh, efficient ways of improving sound quality. Gosh, that'd be cool. If, if artists want it, recording engineers will try yeah. harder. And I think artists are starting to clue into the audiophile thing with the yeah. resurgence in vinyl. And, and we have the medium, too, you know, like with with streaming and high-res streaming. Uh, you know, it's there's no excuses. Um, it's just there are so many instances where artists don't, I think it starts with the artists, you know, a yeah. lot of like yeah. great recording studios. Yeah. They are thinking about, you know, the quality and how, how to actually the techniques to record, uh, instruments and all that. It's, it's really like the artist. It starts with the artist. Have the artist chooses the, the studio for instance, and, and they save up the money, the extra money for the price for, for a better with, studio, with the nice gear. or, or yeah. they're, you know, working with somebody out of their house that has, a really cheap setup and you know is right. not taking the care right and just because they just think that it's you know save the money on the recording yeah so that's that's where it's and especially a lot of like my really f- a lot of my favorite bands who recorded their some of their best albums when they were really you know a tiny as a band yeah right uh and we're just getting started uh you know, like I wish a lot of times that they would have better recordings back then, you yeah. know, and so today I think it's very achievable, but we can uh further um improve that you know by uh uh inspiring uh musicians getting musicians, musicians to... in front of your audio systems yeah yeah if they hear yeah. if they hear it then they'll they'll go well i want my I want my stuff recorded really well, yeah, you know yeah so your your guy in denver um Alexander, what's his, what's his first name? The guitarist. Uh, uh, so his his name is Enmanuel. En Enmanuel, yeah. Enmanuel Alexander. <coughs> is you put his him name. in front yeah. of your Sasha DAW <clears throat> bass system here and blew his mind. And that's so important for you to do. You got to do that with every musician that you meet. You got to blow their mind because <clears throat> when they hear it, when they experience it, when they know it's possible. They might be searching that out. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's how to do it. I actually just saw him on uh Saturday play at Ophelia's. That's amazing. Yeah. I got to go to one of his shows. Yeah. 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 If I can make it. So, all, all right. right. Well, uh, that's it for our topic. Um, pretty fun little topic. Thanks for letting me blab without further ado. It is time for the album, album of, of the, the week. week. <clears throat> this is, Another album that is a at least a second out al- a second recommended album from the same artist. We do that occasionally. Um, Charlie Hunter has a bunch of albums in our recommended mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Who did we do recently where we did another one by them? I don't know. A Tennyson uh, electronic group had a new album that I just loved so much, and I had shared an album of theirs prior. Well, we're doing it again. 
And this is an artist that you introduced me to. I did. And I was introduced by <clears throat> a keyboardist that I recorded a long time mm. ago named Eric Luba. Mm. Is one of my favorite keyboardists in this whole front range region. It's one of my favorite keyboardists I've ever heard in my whole life. Um, he plays a, a little bit mix between Anomaly and Robert Glasper's kind of Eric's style. Very, very jazzy, very uh, soul, very um, funky. And Eric is in the band Many Colors that uh, provided our um, intro and outro music for our podcast. Oh, nice. <clears throat> so if you listen to it, he's the one playing keys in the very background there, and you've got the guitar that comes in. So cool story. Eric yeah. turned me on to Anomaly. And Anomaly is a guy from Montreal, Quebec, mm -hmm. and um, keyboard player that um, when we recommended his album before, I explained, um, he's extraordinarily gifted on the keyboard, but he's also really gifted in producing and doing his own recording and, and mixing this stuff. And so um, what you get with his recordings is he'll play some acoustic piano but a lot of it will also be synthetic keyboards and all these layers and all this movement and all this kind of full figured sound that kind of thing well i've been following him on instagram for years and he recently was uh talking about his album coming you know in in april <clears throat> or may or something in april i guess and uh and I just love when that happens, when you're kind of aware that something's going to drop, but you're not following it so closely so that the day that it does drop, then you see this, this message that he sent out, like it's, it's live, it's out there. And it's just like, you know, it's a gift waiting just to be unwrapped. And that is his most recent album called gallery, uh, spent spelled in, uh, uh, in the French style there, G-A-L-E-R-I-E. -E. And uh, Anomaly is spelled A-N-O-M-A-L-I-E. So the latest album, Gallery, is just incredible. And I think it represents his best production and his best, some of his best um, compositions and arrangements yet. And it's just stunning on a really mm -hmm. good system. No, none, none more so than on your system here. I mean, it was just like sounding so good. All right, what do you think? I, I put it on. You know Anomaly yeah. now. Yeah, it's it's a great, really great production. Of course, I haven't spent much time with this exact release, but I t intend to this week. Um, but... Right away, like first thoughts are like the production and the music quality here, really superb. Like looking forward to diving more into this release because I always, I always really enjoy his stuff. Like ever since you turned me on to him, it's just like, yeah, he's he's really great. I show I show it to people and they're just like, wow, this stuff's good. You know, it just yeah. hits you at the right spot, yeah. man. Like. You know, it's just so soulful. It's so soulful like you just and funky. feel like his stuff, and like, yeah. and then it, and then he's just <clears throat> so chopped. Well, mu he's a musician's it's, musician. Yeah. So musicians are really into him because he had this. He has this way of 
making an appeal to not like people who don't recognize the complexity of the time signatures or the mix meter that he's doing or the different the chord changes and how how many there are um because he's still able to kind of like crack like follow these melodies and the melodies are so funky and the little ways that he performs and just every little flourish and affectation is like so funky that the whole package is digestible by anybody and then if you have a background in music and you're following it you're just like this guy is on another level like this is crazy what he's doing um it's really like and then it's it's one of those recordings where it's like um a lot of it's in the box and synthetic which meant that it never went through an adc which means that it's got this sonic purity to it that can really play yep huge on a on a great system mm-hmm. so it kind of hits all those for me and and i love it so i'm i'm glad you let me uh pick this one this week but anomaly gallery um as always can put this on the website I think I forgot to update the website this week. I, that happens from time to time. But I, I, I always get to it. And we have an albums page where you can see all of our previous albums of the week. Um, we're going to have this on that page. We're going to have this on the front page of the website, um, which is hi-fi, uh, net. But I uh, hope you guys enjoy that. I hope you enjoyed the episode where I um, blabbed a lot about recording. But... Um, it was a lot of fun for me and thanks again Darren for that topic yeah thanks for sharing your knowledge on uh, recording yeah anytime it's a lot of fun a lot of fun thinking back about this kind of stuff but uh, anyway with all that said uh, this has been another hi-fi podcast with Darren and Duncan I'm Duncan I'm Darren and we'll catch you next week alright see you bye the hi-fi podcast with Darren and Duncan is produced by Darren Myers and Duncan Taylor copyright 2020 of Slope Productions. The intro and outro music is provided by Denver's Color Red Studios and features the song Bangs by the band Many Colors.